What's the connection between making vows, praying, grain, sheep, and God's righteousness? You say there's no connection at all between all of those things. But in the psalm that we're going to... What's that? Okay, they are all words. That's, that's, that's true. In the psalm that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 65, all of these things come up. Uh, the heading that I have in my Bible is God's abundant favor to earth and man. Uh, the title that I put for us is Rejoice in the Blessings of Your Righteous God. Uh, it's noted to be a psalm of David for the choir director, a song. And unlike many of the laments that we have looked at in the Psalms, in the earlier portion, this is a Psalm that is praise to God. And it's praise to God that I think is introduced in verses 1 through 4, and then sort of given examples or developed in the later part of the Psalm. So let's read verses 1 through 4 together. There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And so I think in verses 1 through 4, we are introduced to the context of God's blessing, which is his relationship with his people. Recently, I've been teaching through Romans in the class that I do at the kids' school, and just seeing the progression in that book, uh, discussing God's righteousness as well throughout the book of Romans, especially in chapters 1 and chapter 3, uh, it shows the great divide that exists between God and humanity apart from God's intervention and the great fellowship that God's people have with him because of who he is and because of his choice of them. I think this psalm, we see a very similar thing. When he says silence, praise, the vow, prayer, that is worship. The Israelites were worshiping God. God received it. God deserved it. And that is the context of the blessing that he pours out on his people in verses 1 and 2. But we have also the problem in verse 3 of sin. And so, like Paul talked about, like we observe in our own experience, our relationship with God is not perfected. Even though we stand right in God's sight, we still sin. David still sinned. The people of Israel still sinned, and that is why it's so important that it says, iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions, you forgive them. Because when we sin, the only thing that helps us is God's forgiveness. Apart from God's forgiveness, we would, we would be in, in huge trouble, obviously. So... The reason that God forgives and the reason that people are gathering before him in worship is described in verse 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. 
And we might think that David is saying specifically, I'm anointed as the king, so I gather before God. But he's talking about, I think, especially in the later part of the verse, all of the Israelites collectively coming before God, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Now, there's some probably person out there who said, well, he says temple. There was no temple when David was around, so someone else must have written it, or they made it up, or this is an error in the Bible, something like that. When he says temple, he's simply saying the place where God is, right? And so whether he calls it the tabernacle, whether he calls it the temple, whether he calls it the tent of meeting, as it is called in various places in the Old Testament, God's temple is where he is gathered with his people. And for that matter, Acts points out in Paul's sermon, God doesn't even need a temple to gather with his people. And so uh, we should not get get uh, stuck on that particular phrasing there at the end of verse 4. So God's people have a relationship with him into which they pour their worship and from which they receive forgiveness of sins. And all of this is because God has chosen them to come before him and gather as his people. And so that's sort of the background of all the things that it says later in the psalm. He talks in verses 5 through 8 about God's majesty and his works generally, and then specifically in verses 9 through 13, God's blessing that he pours out on the earth. So verses 5 through 8, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. So there's, there's creation themes here, right? God made all of these things. There is the fact of God having might over all these things, verse 6, establishing the mountains, verse 7, stirring the seas and the waves, and the people, who are sometimes compared to angry waves and angry seas. And this is not something that's a localized demonstration of God's power. It says, They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. And so when we look at that description... And we, we pick up on, in verse uh, 5, the idea of God answering his people in righteousness. Sometimes we think of righteousness specifically as it deals with, we're sinful, God's not sinful. Like, I think in our mind, sometimes we make righteousness the same thing as holiness. And they're very closely related, but God's righteousness, as far as a, a, a description of his character, is more than just, we're sinners, but God forgives us in such a way that he's not sinful. And so, the reason I say that is, we come to a passage like Romans 1, where it says, everybody sees God. Okay, verse 8, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs, except Romans 1 is saying the opposite, right? They see them, but they don't stand in awe of them. They try to explain them away. But there are those among the Gentiles 
who saw and marveled that there is a God, even if they didn't necessarily have all of the blessings of the Israelites, God having revealed himself specifically to his people in, in more detail and through the law and all of those sorts of things. And that's where I think Paul comes in in Romans 2 and talks about conscience and an awareness of God and his right and wrong in the world. And so there were people among the Gentiles in their contact with the people of Israel who did believe in God, who did trust in God. I mean, when you come to the book of Acts and you see the guy coming all the way up from Ethiopia, not a Jew, but somehow he got connected with the Israelites, was worshiping at the temple, all of those sorts of things. God's name is known in more places than just among, in Israel's day, Israel, and in our day, just in the church. There are people who are aware that there is a God. Now, obviously, you can't be in right relationship with God apart from, in the Old Testament, being connected with Israel, and in the New Testament, being connected with God through his church. But this is something where there is knowledge of God throughout the whole earth. Well, then we come to verses 9 to 13. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. The picture that's painted here by the psalmist is one that is both true and also fairly optimistic when we look at Israel's history. Because there were a, a great number of time periods in Israel's history in which God's blessing wasn't upon them, and all these things weren't true. David sees in, he looks out and he sees in God's blessing on his people at the particular point when he's observing it, he sees God's abundance poured out on his people. And he's using imagery that he was familiar with streams and grain and showers and pastures and hills and meadows and all of these sorts of things. And he, he keeps repeating these images to just give this overwhelming picture of God's bounty and favor toward his people. But what does that have to do with God being righteous? What does that have to do with God's relationship with his people? When we disconnect God's blessing from God's righteousness, then we arrive at false teaching. So, you'll hear people on TV, they'll say, God says, and fill in the blank, whatever it is they say God says. But they're not saying what's true. And we look at them, and we say, wow, they have big houses. They have their own plane. They have 20 cars. Whatever else it might be. There's a temptation to jump to it and say, well, because they're doing so well, God must be blessing them. But this passage shows a link between God's righteous character and God's blessing that is not the sort of temporal gain 
that false teachers have for a brief time in the present day. And this passage also connects God's righteousness to his creative power. And I think that's important because if we disconnect God's righteousness from his creative power, then we get this perspective on what God is doing in the world that is basically just, you're a sinner, God wants you to not be a sinner, and here's the way you cannot be a sinner. But think about what Romans 8 says. The whole creation is yearning for the return of Christ, the restoration, all of those sorts of things. What does relationship with God and God's work in creation and God's blessing, where do those things come together? Well, for one, they come together in Jesus, right? They come together in Jesus in the sense that verse 7 stills the roaring of the sea and the roaring of their waves. Who said, peace be still, and the storm stopped with his disciples on the sea, right? Jesus did that. And when it says the tumult of the peoples, People might say, well, yeah, he got a, a little sea to calm down. Maybe he just had a lucky meteorological guess, you know. Who can bring peace to the nations? That's a task nobody makes a lucky guess about, right? And it hasn't happened since the world began, and it will not happen until Jesus comes and rules the nations with a rod of iron. So... All of these things come together that we see in Psalm 65 in Jesus. But what about the blessing part? And we see this and we're like, all right, I'm happy that the stream is full, but I don't want it to be too full because I don't want it to flood. And I'm glad that there's grain, but... I'm kind of glad that there's grain in the sense that I can have cereal, not in the sense that I'm amazed driving through it. I mean, it's great for people who live in Iowa and Indiana and those kind of places, but that really doesn't affect my daily life. And, you know, it's nice that people have gardens and it grows and all of those sorts of things. In verse 11, I don't know what this thing about dripping with fatness, that sounds kind of, you know, unhealthy. And, uh, you know, these images seem so disconnected to us, right? Because that's not, we don't live in a, we live in a city, more, more or less, right? We, or neighborhoods. We don't really see all of these things in the way that David would have seen them, or in the way that, I mean, even farmers a couple hundred years ago would have seen them on a regular basis. I want you to turn over to Isaiah 61. There's a ton of passages that I think tie into this psalm that I would encourage you to read through as I was looking at this psalm and thinking about other connections to other places in the Bible, not to change the meaning of this psalm, but to help us understand this psalm in its context and, and relative to where we stand today. I just want us to turn over to Isaiah 61 because I think there's a really interesting intersection of these things.
It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That verse gets printed up on things and pulled out of context more often than you might think. But um, beauty instead of ashes, you probably heard that phrase. See this in its context. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in the land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. And then their offspring will be known among their nations, uh, the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because of the, they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So, my point in reading that for you is not to um, not to say that Psalm 65 doesn't have meaning in and of itself. We can look at Psalm 65 and we can say that there is an example and, and, and perhaps even an admonition to praise God in the context of relationship with Him because of His mighty works and because of His blessings on His people. We can say that without reference to any other passages of Scripture. But standing where we stand, disconnected from the images of the psalm, sometimes without reference to the rest of the Old Testament because it tends to be puzzling and difficult to see how it all fits together, I just want to encourage you to see what God is unfolding in the course of history. So when David talks about God's righteousness and God's mighty works, and God's blessing on his people, that wasn't just for the Israelites. That wasn't just something that happened a long time ago and will never be again. That's something that in the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, in the return of Christ, we will see again. And we can argue about how specifically we fit into that and how Israel fits into that and how all those things precisely the timeline of those things. But what is clear is God is unfolding a plan in which His righteous character is demonstrated throughout the whole earth 
And in this vision that David lays out for us in Psalm 65, that's not just going to be this one person here and that one person there and that, those people over there are going to see that. The whole earth is going to see it. So Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or what it says in Ephesians 1, that Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, has been exalted by God and our participation in the blessings connected with our union with him are so certain that Paul says they're already true. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. But you're also seated right here in the pew, right? And that's the day in and day out reality that we live with. And so what I want you to do when you read Psalm 65 is to see that God expects worship, to see that God forgives sin, to see that God has gathered a people for himself. And that was true of Israel. That's true for us today in the church. And that's going to be true for all of God's people gathered before him for all eternity. And when all of these things come together, or the way in which they come together, is in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who says, peace be still to the storm. The one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. The one who's going to pour out blessings on his covenant people in the end times in his return. The one who, as we're familiar with in Romans 3, is the one that we're justified by. The one whose righteousness we possess in Christ, in God's sight, the one who is actively changing our characters through sanctification so that we will be righteous like our God, so that Ephesians 5, the church is presented to Christ as a perfect spotless bride, which, interestingly enough, has a lot of parallels to what it says in the end there of Isaiah 61. And so when we read a psalm like Psalm 65, read it in its context. It was true of the people of Israel. But recognize that it has implications and connections throughout the Bible far beyond just one chapter that a shepherd wrote when he was looking out over his flocks and herds. It's part of this, this amazing thing that God is unfolding from the beginning when he spoke the world into the existence to the end when he destroys and reshapes the world in judgment and wrath and has a new heavens and a new earth for his people. And, you know, all the other pictures in Isaiah of the, of the, the lion laying down with the lamb and all those sorts of things. Think about the beginning of the book of Isaiah, though, right? And think about what we see in David's life and think about what we see in the history of Israel sin over and over again God completely righteous doesn't change keeps his promises people David commits adultery and arranges murder the Israelites commit spiritual adultery and actual immorality with the idols and the peoples around them in the book of Isaiah God basically says judgment is coming because you've rejected me and rejected me and rejected me we in our own daily experience <coughs> see our own sin 
But God is the God who forgives sin, according to Psalm 65. The Israelites would, would gather for worship. They would make vows and sing praise to God and do all these sacrifices and all these other sorts of things. We gather for worship as we sing praise to God, as we look at His Word, as we pray together. We are God's people because of His choice and His calling on us, just like the Israelites. But the only way that any of that is possible is because God is righteous. Because if God were unrighteous, He wouldn't deserve worship. And if God were unrighteous, He wouldn't forgive our sin, or we wouldn't be able to have a consistent expectation of forgiveness of sin. And if God were unrighteous, He would be like the gods of the pagans, who doesn't really care about having a relationship with His worshipers. He enjoys looking at them, you know, worshipers of Baal, dancing around, cutting themselves, all of those sorts of things. Do you think their gods rejoiced in watching them doing that, the demons that they were worshiping? Probably. But that's not what our God is like. Our God in Psalm 65 is righteous, and our righteous God, according to the scope of the Bible, is unfolding demonstrations of His mighty deeds and blessing on His people in ways that David likely didn't fully understand and we often forget about or haven't, don't really anticipate, and, and certainly there's things that we don't even know about, all the things that God is going to do. But the fact remains, God is righteous. God deserves our worship. God forgives our sin. Having chosen us, God pours out His blessing on His people. And so look at these glimpses of what God is like in the Psalms and in other places in the Old Testament. And realize they're not isolated incidents in the Bible that only had to do with those people. The same God who is the God of Adam and the God of Abraham and the God of David and the God of Hezekiah and the God of Isaiah is our God. Praise God in His righteousness. Lord, as we look at these truths from your word, there's, there's no way I could do justice to all the truths that are, uh, the ways that all these things fit together. But hopefully, you will stir our hearts and whet our appetites to, to understand these truths better, to praise you more, to realize how faithful you are in the face of our sin to realize how far short our worship sometimes falls of what it should be in light of how amazing you are, to realize how undeserving we are to have been chosen as your people, and yet you have made us yours, and you work in us, and we can gather before you. Lord, I pray that we would praise you as our righteous God. Amen.